0: We all have questions. Hmm, mac and cheese, or do I spring for ramen tonight? Are we there yet? Oh no, not again. Where did I park my car? For many questions, the answers are right at our fingertips. But what about the questions your smartphone can't answer? Could the Bible possibly be the answer book? Great question. Here is Pastor Scudder with today's lesson. We do have questions, don't we? Uh, I hope all of your Thanksgiving was great, by the way. Uh, we had a wonderful time at our in our home with our family and friends, and uh, uh, then the next thing we know, there's snow, so I guess we're ready for Christmas now, aren't we? Uh, continue to pray for the pageant, because that's the big focus now as we are uh, getting closer and closer to a so, uh, sellout, we did add the Wednesday performance, and uh, that's almost half full already, and so uh, the the further we get toward full, the slower the tickets will go, but there's still 17 days uh, before the pageant. Is that right? 17 days? And so uh, continue to pray for many, many people to come and to hear the gospel, to see the gospel, and uh, that God would give us just a, a wonderful time during our Christmas pageant season. We do have questions in life, don't we? Uh, Kids have questions. As a matter of fact, I was reading some questions, real questions that kids asked. Uh, One kid was talking to her mom, and she said, now, plants need water and sun to grow, right? Right. And rainbows are made from light. And water droplets, right? Right. So she said, then, is our rainbows plant food? It's actually a pretty good question. Are rainbows plant food? Another another kid said, hey, Dad, um, why were swear words invented if we're not allowed to use them? (laughs) I mean, these are profound questions, aren't they? They're actually pretty... Uh, Pretty good. Pretty astute. Uh, uh, One little girl asked her dad, she said, Daddy, when I turn four, what happens to my three? So these are questions, real questions that kids have. And uh, we have some really good questions that you have asked. You've submitted these questions. Some, by the way, were submitted a while ago, and I didn't get a chance to answer them on the last time I did the answer series. So we're gonna answer some older questions, but they're still relevant, of course, if they're Bible questions. And then we also have uh, new ones that were submitted recently. The first one is a recent question, and that is, why do the Palestinians claim Israel as their land? I've heard that they are descendants of Ishmael. Is this true? What right do they have to the land. I don't see Hamas agreeing to a two-state solution, and I'll just stop right there and say I agree with that. Hamas doesn't want a two-state solution. They don't want their own state of Palestine or for the Palestinians. They want one state of Palestine with no Jews and no Israel, okay? So when people cry in our protests, even here in America, even here in Chicago, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What they're asking for is the annihilation of the only Jewish homeland. And, and so people, I think a lot of people are ignorant of that. They don't realize that, but that is the truth. And there's a reason that I say that, and that is because when Jordan still controlled what we call the West Bank, and I would call, I'd rather call it the biblical words of Judea and Samaria, Okay, but it's called the West Bank. When Jordan controlled it before 1967, the PLO was established before 1967, and they were calling from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free when they had the West Bank. They did not form their own country then. And so when Israel took it because they were attacked and they every time Israel was attacked, they gained land, they uh, now they control it and it. Biblically speaking, it actually is Israel's land. And I'm going to give you the the reasons I say that. Okay, so I don't see Hamas, the question says, agreeing to a two-state solution. But if one was agreed upon, is this solution biblical? I'll just say this. I do feel that the world will force Israel into a two-state solution. I do feel that they will, that will be part of this peace. It's a false peace, but it'll be a a final seven-year peace that the Bible predicts. I think it will be a two-state solution. That's my opinion. The Bible really doesn't give us a clue on that, but we do know that that's the solution the world has been pushing upon Israel. And Israel, by the way, for many years has been open to that. They've, They've offered that. As a matter of fact, that was the UN partition plan. That was a two state solution, wasn't it? And Israel said, okay, they got very small portions of their ancestral homeland. When you dig in Israel, you find Jewish coins. You don't find Palestinian coins. As a matter of fact, there was no such thing as an Arab Palestinian people before 1920. You look back in history, there isn't such a thing. Okay? Everybody that lived in that land was called. Palestinians. I know that for sure because one of my guides in Israel said that his parents or grandparents, birth certificate, they were born in Israel before, before 48. It called them Palestinians and they're Jewish. That, on their birth certificate says they were Palestinians because that's what they called everyone that lived in that, that land. Why was it called Palestine? Where does that name come from? The Romans were so frustrated with the revolts of Israel that they finally said, okay, we're not going to call this Judea. We're going to call this Philistia. Where does Philistia come from? The Philistines. Where did the Philistines live? Gaza. Isn't that crazy? But for for many, many years, Jewish people lived in Gaza. Uh, They controlled Gaza. They took Gaza from the Egyptians and And other people, but they always gave Gaza back. Gaza wasn't occupied for the last 18 years. Anyways, um, all of this, who are the modern Palestinian people? That's the question. Some of them, I would even say many of them are Arabs. Okay. And the questioner does talk about the Arabs being descendants of Ishmael. And that is true. That is true. So many of them are Arabs that have lived in these lands, by the way. And when Israel, when the Jewish people started to go back to the land, they always lived in the land, even, even when they were pushed out and dispersed, as God said they would be. There were still always some people that were living in the land all the time, but they started to come back to the land because of antisemitism, because of people that had Jew hatred. And that's been going on for centuries. But they were really forced back to land in a big way after World War II because of the Holocaust. So there they were in the land. Never did they take land unless it was part of a war that they were attacked or they were threatened to be attacked. They captured land during those as any nation can. But they would move in to uninhabited land. They were taking a Desolate land. It was, Mark Twain described it as as a, a swampy place that nobody wanted. They took that land, they drained the swamps, they made it fertile, and they made it blossom. That's what the Jewish people have done. They purchased land from the Arabs, they've never stolen land. Okay? So all of those things are true, those things are facts. But who are the Palestinians? Well, many of them are Arabs that were living in the area. But. Many of them were brought by the Turks. The Turks controlled the land from the 16th to the 19th century. And they brought a lot of people that were from surrounding Turkey to come work the land. And then also, the British did the same thing. They brought people from Sudan and Egypt and Syria to into the land. So the, the today, the group called Palestinians are basically an amalgamation of Arabs and some of these other people groups from around. Okay, but we call them Palestinians. They don't have a history of, of that's their land. Okay, but there they are. They're living there today. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And by the way, there are a lot of Arabs that are Israelis. A lot of them. Um, I, and I don't know if this number's right, but I think it's, it's well over a million. They have Arabs that are in the Knesset. They have Arabs in the IDF. They have Arabs in high places. Okay. So it's the the problem isn't getting along with Arabs. The problem is it really comes down to Islam and militant Islam, or I would even call it fundamental Islam. There's a, there's a hatred within Islam of the Jewish people and of anyone that isn't Muslim and that would be us too. So after Israel, Hamas would like to do the same thing to us, Okay, just so everyone knows that. Now, let's talk about Ishmael for a second. The question is, we, we know that there is a promise to Abraham, to his son, that through Abraham's son, there would be a multitude of people and there would be the people that came from the sun would possess the land we call Israel forever. That's actually both in the Quran and in the Bible. The Quran was written about 1,400 years ago. The Bible, the portion in Genesis talking about this, was written over 3,000 years ago, well over 3,000 years ago. So the Quran says that it, the Bible was corrupt, so The Quran is the uncorruption of what the Bible says. And the Quran says that Ishmael is the proper descendant of Abraham that God, Allah, promised the land and, and that Ishmael's descendants would occupy the land forever. The Bible says, no, no, it is Isaac. And I'll read you that scripture in Genesis 17 in just a moment. So the question is this. Who has the right to the land? From God, Isaac or Ishmael. Well, we're going to read the Bible. Why do I count the Bible uh, as accurate and I don't count the Quran as accurate? Well, because this one came first. And people say, yeah, but it's copies of copies and, and translations and it's been corrupted. Do you know why I know that's not true? One of the main reasons is because they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls show a bridged, Uh, over a thousand years of history where they said all this corruption was happening and all these transmission errors were happening and they compared something they had before and something they had now and it matches from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It jumped a thousand years of so-called errors, but there's no errors. This book has been faithfully transmitted, carefully transmitted, so I trust the Bible. I truly do. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this whole issue? Well... Let's look at Genesis chapter 17. Ishmael, by the way, God had promised Abraham a son and that through his son, the whole world would be blessed. Through his son, his, the, the descendants would be like the sand of the sea. Through the son, the, the, the people would possess the land forever. And, I, and Abraham was getting old and Sarah was getting old. And Sarah said, well, you know, maybe um, we'll help God. Fulfill his promise. Be careful about that. Pa- be patient. That's, the, that's the, the one thing I do not possess is patience. Pray for patience. Oh, be careful about that too. Because God might really give you some opportunities to learn patience. But they were impatient. They were going to fulfill God's promise. And so Sarah gave to Abraham his hand, her handmaiden, uh, Hagar, who was from Egypt. And they had a son, and that really upset Sarah because she thought maybe it was Abraham was the problem. Well, it turned out it was her, her barrenness, that was the problem. Well, now Ishmael was born, and after Ishmael was born, God reiterates his promise to Abraham and that it's not through Ishmael that the initial Abrahamic covenant was given, an unconditional promise to bless the whole world and for the land forever. Genesis 17, 17 makes it very clear from this book that I trust. And if you want to look at the Quran, people aren't supposed to question the Quran because if you do, they will order a fatah or jihad, you know, against people that criticize the the Quran. I'm just going to say, if you study the Quran, you're going to find a lot of problems with it. A lot of problems, a lot of errors, a lot of copy, copyright stuff from the Bible. Okay. But, at the bottom, at the end of the day, the Bible says, Genesis seventeen seventeen. then Abraham fell on his face. Why? Because God had reiterated his promise through Abraham and through a son with, uh, with Sarah that the whole world will be blessed. And, and Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? I don't know the oldest person in this room but I don't think there's anyone in here that's 100 and if you were I don't think you would feel that you could bring a child into this world. And you would laugh too. And so Sarah that is 90 years old bear. Uh folks, once you're getting a little bit older, even past 40, you know, it's 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 difficult, right, to bring to bear a child. Well, how about 190? 100 years old and 90 years old, Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. So Abraham said, this is my son. So he, he must be the son of promise, Ishmael. Well, God said, verse 19 of Genesis 17, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. A son from Sarah at 90. And thou shalt call his name Laughter. Isaac. Yassach. Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with who? Him. For an everlasting covenant and his seed after him. The blessing is not to Ishmael. The blessing, the, the Abrahamic covenant blessing is to Isaac. That doesn't say God hates Ishmael. That doesn't say God isn't going to bless Ishmael. Ishmael. Read on. For as for Ishmael, God says, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. And so that has come to pass. Many, many great nations have arisen from the Arab population, from Ishmael. And there are some absolutely wonderful Arab people. I know some. They're my friends. They're wonderful people. We're not to hate anybody, but we are to especially love, and support the descendants of Abraham through Isaac because that's the promise. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Wow, what an amazing promise of God. And it all came to pass through Isaac. So Hamas and what they did on October 7th, 2023 was satanic, 100% satanic. You cannot do the things that they did and do the, 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 the brutality and the inhumane things that they did apart from it being satanic, I believe. And by the way, the Quran teaches death for apostasy. If you turn against uh, Islam or you commit heresy against Islam, the, the actual real Quran teaching is the death penalty, okay? So the problem in Gaza and the so-called West Bank are these extremists committing acts of terrorism in the name of Allah. If Israel put down their weapons today, there would not be peace. If the Palestinians put down their weapons today, there would be peace. When you ask the Palestinians if there is a two-state solution, a friend of mine did this. He filmed them all. Hope in the Holy Land is a great film. We showed it here. You need to watch that. Justin Crone, Todd Moorhead. They asked them, where would, they asked the Palestinians, where would you like to live if there were a two-state solution, Israel or Palestine? They all said Israel and they all said, but don't tell anybody I said that. Okay? That speaks a lot. If we're talking about truth, that's truth, folks. That's truth. And so, again, we don't hate anybody. We love all people. Jesus died for all people. And we need to love our enemies. We need to love everyone. But we definitely need to emphasize our stand with the Jewish people through Isaac. Through Isaac and Jacob. And there is a peace, and there will be a peace promised, a peace treaty. The Bible predicts will be a seven-year peace treaty. A peace agreement was almost achieved with Saudi Arabia, which would have been huge. But then Hamas attacked because of that. Iran is doing everything they can to make sure that the region is not stable. But there is a day that peace will be achieved. And it won't be by this Antichrist. That'll be a a false peace. He comes riding in on a white horse, according to Revelation, promising peace. But that peace won't last very long. But there is a day that the Bible predicts in Isaiah 9-6 that a child is going to come, a son is going to be given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus is a descendant of who? Of Isaac. Okay? Okay? Verse seven, of the increase of his government and, the peace, and peace shall there be no end. It will be a lasting eternal peace, but it won't be until he sits upon the throne of David and upon the kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is the prediction. This is the prophecy. And Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will establish lasting peace and righteousness. Good question, though. Good question. Very important that we understand these issues. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot of people that will say exactly opposite of what I just said. Study the facts. Research the facts. And then I think you'll find what I said. is It's for sure biblical, and I believe it's also historically accurate and practically true in the real world when you go to Israel. The next question is this. And this is another very relevant question. I believe... Mike Johnson, who is the congressman from Louisiana, that's the new Speaker of the House, being easily confirmed for Speaker, I'm not sure if I would categorize that as easily after all the, the uh, incredible craziness that went uh, to find a Speaker. But either way, um, uh, Speaker of the House is divine intervention. So the question is, is Mike Johnson there for a purpose, for a reason? He came out of nowhere. By the way, he he kind of came out of nowhere, but... Uh, he was in leadership in the Republican Party in the House, so I don't know if that's accurate either, uh, and was easily confirmed even by rhinos. I love that term, <laughs> Republican in name moment. Whatever, I don't want to get into all that. But he checks all the boxes, born again, and I do love what he's said about God, the Bible, and, and our histories in America. I, I'm so ex- excited about that. He's against abortion. He believes the Bible should be followed to govern. What do you think? Well, I love... I love him. I, I just think it's amazing that he's the Speaker of the House. I'm shocked. I, I didn't think we would have one. I thought our government would be in dysfunction forever. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I think he's going to have a really, really hard time. Pray for him. But here's the question. Is he there for a purpose? I know that the Bible says very clearly that God rises up and puts down people in authority. Kings. It says this in Daniel 2. In verse 20 and 21, he, he uh, says in verse 21, he removeth kings and set up of kings. Now, the speaker of the house isn't a king, but he is in line to the president of the most powerful nation on the planet. Uh, and so he certainly has a lot of authority. And God is in charge of giving us who we deserve. Does that mean we shouldn't go out and vote and campaign for people that are, are closest to scripture? No, we should do all that. But at the end of the day, we do everything we can. Leave it up to God. He's the one that will rise and fall, people. And why am I, why am I so shocked that he's our our speaker? I just didn't think we would have someone that had such a a good, solid, biblical basis. Now the media's ripping him up, ripping him up. Pray for him. Uh, I wondered just before I got this question if the reason he became speaker after Israel was attacked, is that our president, by the way, and some argue that our president, Joe Biden, his policies and uh, or lack of policies with Iran, emboldened Iran, giving money back to Iran kind of caused all of this. But I'll, I don't know about all that. But I, I, I do know we need to have better policies against um, Iran, people that hate us, Islamic a uh, fundamental jihadists we need to we need to have good policies against that strong policies but i know that president biden flew to israel sent the secretary of state to israel sent sent the secretary of defense to israel immediately i was so happy for that i'm so happy that most of our leaders have stood in support of israel even our governor and and i i'm i'm thankful for that now, is it because America did the right thing in crisis? We're helping them defend themselves with the uh, Iron Dome missiles and whatever else they need? Uh, are we, is is it because we're blessing Israel right now? Now, believe me, I think that our administration right now is cause, is calling for a full ceasefire. I hope Israel doesn't. I hope Israel will continue to take out Hamas. Of course, the sad thing about that is There are innocent people involved, and that's horrible. It's sad, but there's no way a country, there's no way we would allow to have a a regime that was so, that did so many barbaric, horrible things and and threatening us all the time. There's no way that America would allow that if one of our neighbors did that to us. So we we, would, I think we have to allow them to continue to do all this. But either way, we did stand with Israel in the time of crisis as a nation and all of a sudden we get an amazing godly speaker of the house are those two things connected i don't know but i'm thankful and i know god will bless those that bless israel so i don't have a good answer but i do know that god is in charge of those things and he does he does rise and fall uh, governments and empires and kings and princes uh question the next question Will children of unsaved parents who are too young to understand the gospel and make a decision to accept Christ as their Savior be raptured or left behind? Interestingly, we got another very similar question from somebody else. What will happen to children under the age of accountability at the rapture? What about the living unborn? What about the non-living unborn? Well, this is a loaded question. It's actually a very good question. We have to talk about two things here. One is we need to talk about what is the age of accountability? What happens when someone that is mentally handicapped um, that that doesn't understand or can't have the capacity to accept the gospel? What happens when there's a, a a really young child or even an unborn child that dies prematurely or there's an abortion? What happens to that eternal soul? And that's that's another question. The other question is what is the rapture? Okay, so let's talk about the rapture real quick. Many of you already know this, but let's just go over it. First Thessalonians 4, in verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who are the dead in Christ? Those in this church age, from Pentecost until now, that have died, they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're born again, they're saved, but they die. Those of the dead in Christ will rise first, at this trumpet, at this voice of the archangel. And it says that we, then we which are alive and remain, so there's going to be a group of people, believers that are alive, will join those that have been deceased. And together, the Bible says, we shall be caught up. People say there's no place in the Bible the word rapture is used. But here, this is actually the word rapture, is to be caught up. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's other references in Scripture uh, to this event. This is an event that's going to happen in the future. We don't know when. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years. We don't know when it'll be. But I do believe it's a lot sooner today than it was yesterday. And so I'm looking forward to the rapture. I'm looking forward to this moment. I don't want to face physical death. I don't want to face the pain of it if there is going to be pain. I ask the Lord all the time, Lord, make it quick. Make it quick. Uh, so there's the rapture, and, that, and that's going to happen. And And, and the question is, what happens at the rapture to children that are below the age of accountability? The age of accountability, by the way, is a, a term that we use to talk about this. We don't find that anywhere, anywhere in the Bible that there's a certain age. It's not like when they get to five or when they get to 13. It's not a certain age. But, but we do know salvation is, is dependent upon faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for our sins and rose again. And if there's a, a, an infant or a young child that that they, they don 't have the ability to put their faith in jesus they, they can understand the gospel they can't do that so what happens to them and then you could put into that same category uh, a pre uh, unborn baby that that passes away or whatever okay so we assume and I believe this is true that God that Jesus paid for all sin on the cross and a god applies the blood of Jesus to the account of those that didn't have the ability to believe. They were mentally handicapped or whatever. And so God applies that payment to their account and they are they are saved. That's how I've always felt. And if you've lost a child uh, or if you've had an abortion or if you had a stillbirth or whatever it is, a miscarriage, I think you're going to see that child in heaven. And there's a passage, there's one passage that a lot of parents cling to, and I do too, as a pastor to counsel parents that have lost children and that is when King David lost his child, when he sinned with Bathsheba, part of the, the curse of that sin was that this child would die. Okay? And he was mourning when the child was sick. And he was, he was, uh, miserable. And then when the child died, all of a sudden, he got up. And he stopped mourning. It would be kind of the opposite of what you would expect, right? Well, first, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 22, and he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me and that the child may live? Okay? But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Here's the key word or sentence. I shall go to him. And I think that there's a lot of solace there, isn't there? To people that have lost children. So what happens at the rapture to those young children that haven't been able to accept Christ? Or the person is also asking about those in the womb, uh, those that have died in the womb. You know, what happens to their bodies? And I, I would just assume that that those uh, those people would be raptured as well. That's just my guess. I don't have any biblical basis for that, but I do have a lot of. Uh, of um, Trust that those, those innocent, those children, the handicapped, mentally handicapped, uh, God will be gracious to them. And, and I know God is good, and that's the end of the, the day. We know He's good, we know He's just, we know He's fair, and that seems to be logical to me. Next question. At creation, when everything was perfect, Adam and Eve didn't have a knowledge of good and evil. They lost their innocence when they ate the fruit. In heaven, when everything is remade and perfect, will we go back to a state of innocence? Or will we still have that knowledge of good and evil? Have we forever lost our innocence due to sin? That's a really good question. Now, let's talk about some facts. We know when sin entered the world, so did fear, so did guilt, so did cynicism, so did Restlessness, all of these things entered in when sin entered in. Innocence was replaced by sin. In Genesis 3, verse 6, And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. By the way, this tree is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tree was put in the garden so that people had a choice, so that Adam and Eve had a choice to obey or to not obey, and they chose, of course, under the uh, temptation of the devil to disobey. She was fooled. She took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband. He wasn't fooled, and he did eat, and the eyes of them were both opened. So they, they suddenly saw things that they never saw before, they, and that wasn't always good. It's like when your children reach a certain age, and you kind of know when that age is. When they, they kind of lose their innocence. Not to say the little children are innocent. No, they certainly aren't. You can see sin in the smallest of children. We're born in sin. We have sin. But there's a certain innocence about them, right? And you kind of see when they lose that. It seems to be around four or five, generally speaking. And I know that's the age when I started to understand my sin and my, the need of a Savior. And that's when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, around five. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that's what the Lord did all the time. The Lord created us for fellowship, for for walking with him. And they hid themselves. That's what sin does. That's what the lack of innocence will do from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Well, what about the future? What about the future? Well, let's read a couple passages, uh, Revelation 21 and, and 22. Revelation 21 and t- uh, verse 4, the Bible says, God shall wipe all tears from their eyes and there shall be what? No more death. Death is because of sin. Therefore, there will be no more sin and there will be more, no more death in, in the eternal state into the millennial kingdom and beyond neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Isn't that wonderful? And then in in Revelation 22, we actually start to read about something that sounds a lot like Eden, doesn't it? He showed me a pure river of water of life. There was a river that flowed out of Eden. This is the river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street, On either side of the river, there was the tree of life. That was another tree that was in the garden. Okay, so it's almost like a reset, right? Of the way God made it. Which bear 12 manners of fruit and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And this is the verse that I really am thrilled is in the Bible. And there shall be no more curse. Okay, so the question is, once the curse is removed, once death is eradicated... Will we ever return back to the state of innocence where we cannot sin? It's a good question. Here's where I say, yes, in a sense. Our innocence is restored the moment you accept Christ as savior. In other words, if you only walked in the newness of your salvation in the Holy Spirit that indwells you, you will not sin. You will not want to sin. You say, then why do I still sin after I've been saved? Because you have something called the old nature still, the flesh nature. It's all through the New Testament. That's why the books of the New Testament were written, because we still have the old nature. We need to yield to the new nature. We don't need to try to stop doing these things. We need to start yielding to the Holy Spirit. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will see sin for what it is, and we won't have, want it to have anything to do with it. Once we're in heaven, that old nature will be eradicated. It'll be gone. So no longer will you have, uh, you, you will never be fooled again. You will always see sin and rebellion for what it is. Hideous, horrible, disgusting. And I don't know if the, the right way to say it is we will uh, not have the ability to sin, but we will not want to sin ever once we get rid of that old nature. Won't that be a glorious day? Man, I can't wait for that old nature to be gone. So I think that might be a better way of saying it um, when we're talking about all of this. The knowledge of evil is a horrible thing because once you know it, it's it's impossible to unknow it. But once we have Jesus' righteousness and the new nature and the old nature is, is gone, we will only want to do right. And that will be for all eternity. And so you don't have to worry about sin anymore uh, because there's no more death. There's no more sin. There's no more curse. Say amen if you're glad about all of that. Amen. Another question. Before the fall, the Bible says all creatures were vegetarians. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but it implies that because... Later on, we're we're told that after the flood in in Genesis 9, that God allowed them to eat meat. So before that, we would assume that they weren't allowed to eat meat and they would eat of all of the the, the fruits and vegetables in the garden. Uh, But either way, so we would assume that humans and creatures were vegetarians. I think after sin, a lot of the animals started not being vegetarians anymore, right? Um, and you say, well, why would they have these huge teeth and dinosaurs and lions and sharks? And Well, you know those same huge teeth can tear uh, vegetation quite well. So, and a lot of these big creatures that might eat a man also eat grass, okay? So the teeth can, can cut grass just as well as cutting us. But either way, we, we wouldn't see death before sin. We wouldn't see uh, any of us dying. So the question is this. If we would live forever and there was no death, uh, the Bible says that men and animals were told by God to be fruitful and multiply. So if Adam and Eve had not sinned, where would they all fit? That's a good question. There's no animals dying, but they're multiplying. There's no humans dying, but they're all multiplying. Wouldn't we run out of room pretty, pretty soon? And I would say you would imagine so, right? Although I am still amazed at how many people are in this world but you could still fit them all into a pretty small area. Okay, um, here's here's what I know. God is a smart. Uh, God is way smarter than we are. He would have had a way to solve this. So how could you solve this? One, you could slow down or stop replication. It's not a big deal. You could do that. God can do that. So that's one option. Two, he could create other worlds for people. We don't know. Uh, God knew ahead of time what would happen that we would be violent, that we would be sinful, and the whole promise of the Savior was promised before sin. And that doesn't mean God caused it. God gave us the ability to choose. We chose to sin, uh, and God promised the Savior, and salvation is available to all people that believe that Jesus, his son, died for our sins and rose again. Uh, So it's an interesting question, but I think God would have no trouble with that. Uh, Question, can the devil put thoughts into our minds? This is interesting. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say yes. Because the Bible warns us about the devil. First Peter five, eight. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh around seeking whom he may devour. This is written to Christians. Be aware, be prepared, watchful. Now we know that Satan entered into the heart of Judas. When Judas betrayed Jesus, but you would say, "Well, Judas wasn't saved," and I agree. But also in Acts, it tells us that Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about giving land and money from land to the church, uh, the Lord t- uh, took them to heaven, and it says that they're that Satan uh, influenced them, and they were saved. Okay, so. God tells us in Ephesians 4 not to give a place to the devil. Don't put out a doormat for the devil. We need to guard our minds. We need to be aware of what he is capable of. Now, does he just whisper in your ear? Does he implant a thought? Or does he just allow someone to come across your path that can take you in the wrong direction? I think, I know when I was a kid, I I liked to blame the devil for everything. It's kind of like blaming the dog for eating your homework. Uh, you know, I tried that once on my dad. I I tested out my newfound child theology and I said, you know, dad, why'd you do that? Jimmy, the devil made me do it. Dad, (laughs) my theology quickly changed because my dad taught me that it wasn't the devil's fault. It was my fault. Okay. So I think often we give devil credit for just the the flesh nature, the things that we think of or the, the world. We have to be aware that the devil is trying to get you. He's trying to take you out. Not to, He can't take your salvation, folks. Once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, one time you're born again. You're a child of God. But the devil can ruin your influence and your testimony and your rewards. He can do all of that. So what does the Bible say? Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11. What's one of the pieces of the armor? A helmet. Protect your mind. Think the thoughts of Christ. Be aware that he wants to trick you. He wants to make you think that that's going to be wonderful. You don't see sin for what it is, and you're fooled. Don't let that happen. Put on the whole armor of God. There's a whole sermon on the armor of God that I don't have time to preach right now. Another question is, if heaven is perfect, how does the devil have access to God's throne? That's a great question. Okay, let me first quote somebody else. They said, when we say God cannot allow sin into heaven... We simply mean that God cannot allow human beings who are still in their sin to live in his presence. But it is possible for God to command a sinful being to stand temporarily in his presence. We know that God allowed Satan to stand before his presence, a sinful being. And we read about that in Job, don't we? We also read about that in Revelation when uh Revelation 12:10, when the accuser of the brethren is kicked out of heaven is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So the devil today still has access to the throne, but he can't just kind of go to the throne. He has to be summoned by a holy God. So don't think that sin can dwell permanently in the presence of God, but an all-powerful God can summon a sinner for his purposes. Okay, So that might be a better way to understand all of that. Uh, but I know this. We have a greater power over Satan than he has over us because of Jesus. First John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. When you believe, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. He indwells you until the day of redemption. God is in you if you're saved. Uh, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, which is the devil. The next question, the final question today. Mary was a sinner just like all of us and not deity. And and I agree with that statement. That's a biblical statement. What should we say to Catholics that say that she had to be sinless, or at least temporarily sinless, to conceive Christ and carry Christ during her pregnancy? This is really simple. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church does teach, when they say Mary full of grace, they're saying that she was conceived immaculately, that she she was not a sinner. She did not have the stain of sin and therefore, she could carry the innocent Christ. But I also know that Mary was a sinner, like all of us, because in Romans five twelve it says, "Wherefore is by one man sin entered the world, Adam? Death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned." Mary was a sinner like the rest. Now she was highly favored, and in in the Catholic translation, that is full of grace, but that doesn't mean that she was a, a perfect person. She was still a sinner. Only Jesus was perfect. Second Corinthians 5, 21, for he, which is God the Father, hath made him, who is God the Son, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He did not sin. He was born without sin because he didn't have the sin nature. I believe it's passed on by the Father. Adam willfully sinned. He passes upon every child the sin nature. Jesus didn't have an earthly Father, didn't have that sin nature, neither did he sin. Didn't mean that Mary would have to be sinless, but certainly he needed to be born of the Holy Spirit, and he was. He was without sin. He knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here's how I answer someone that thinks that Mary was conceived immaculately, or at least while she carried Jesus, she was, a, she was not a sinner. It's very simple. Luke 1:46, the Christmas story. She had been told earlier that she was going to bring forth the Son of God, even though she was a virgin. She went to see Elizabeth, who also was going to have a child a little bit older than her child, both boys. One was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist left in her womb. That's why we know that in the womb you are an eternal soul, right? And abortion's wrong, okay? But when Mary started to pray her humble prayer, her magnificant, to the Lord, she said, and Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my what? Savior. If she was conceived in without sin, she wouldn't need a savior. She had Jesus already in her womb and she needed a savior. So that's how I would answer that. It's really simple. Just take Luke 147. Romans 5, 19. This is the gospel. For as by one man's sin, one man's disobedience, who is that? Adam. Many were made sinners. Mary, Jim, put your name in there. Many were made sinners. Because of Adam, we've all sinned. Not only do we sin, but we have a sinful nature, the old nature, the flesh nature. So by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many, Mary, Jim, you, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, shall be made righteous. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel. We can't save ourselves. All of us need a Savior. Jesus came, predicted, fulfilled all the prophecies. That's how also I know that this book is the right one. Of all so-called holy books, this is the only one that has accurate predictions of the future. Because of Adam's sin, we've all sinned, we all face death, but because of Jesus' obedience, he never sinned, but he was obedient to the death of the cross, put upon him, this innocent human being, all of the humankind's sin, before him, during Christ, and after him, all sins, and, and my dad used to say, how many of your sins were future when Jesus died? All of them were. So when you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust in Him, the Bible says that you are saved. He paid for all of your sin. When you believe that He di- did that for you, for you, you're saved. You're, look, this is, um, God and He has paid our, our sin debt. Okay. And, and, and He wants to give you eternal life, but He's not going to force that on you. He's giving it to you as a gift. What do you have to do to to take a gift? It's just take it. Just receive it. It's free. You cannot work for it. You cannot pay for it. So he's offering his hand to you. And what you have to do is just open your hand. By the way, your hand is empty too because you have nothing good. Okay? You have no works that that you deserve eternal life. You deserve death. Okay, I do too. And Mary did too, by the way. But when you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, you're putting your hand in God, and now what happens? He, You're in God's hand, and that can never change. You can say, what if What if I mess up? What if the old nature fools me? What if I don't do everything exactly as I should do? The Bible's full of people that didn't do exactly what God should do. I was just reading about uh, the most famous person that uh, did something good in Gaza. Samson. 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 That was in Gaza where he destroyed the temple by pushing. God gave him strength. And he's mentioned in the hall of faith. He was a disaster. Disaster. I'd say everyone in this room is better than Samson, but he's mentioned as a man of faith. It's not by how we live. Now, we should live right because we're going to hurt ourselves less, hurt other people less and honor God more. But salvation isn't about us doing better or doing good. Salvation is about us putting our full trust in the one that was perfect. Jesus paid for our sins. When we put our faith in him, we have everlasting life and you're in the hand of all powerful God who will never let you go. That's the gospel of grace. And that's why I'm here because I'm saved by grace. When I was young, I started to realize my mom and dad were really good at teaching me. I was a sinner and uh, I understood that. I truly did. And I remembered one day, man, I don't, I don't want to let my sin separate me from God. And at a young age, and Jesus said, you need to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Stop overthinking it. Just like a child. When you offer a child a gift, man, what do they do? Just take, it. not overthinking it. Just, just put, put your faith in Jesus. If you're not positive, if you died today, where you would go? Make a decision right now. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm, I can't save myself, but right now, I believe that Jesus died for me. I trust into him. And if you'll do that, the Bible says, You're born again, you're saved. You cannot be unborn. You're a child of God. Now let's start to grow in him and learn of him and and bless the people that he wants us to bless and uh, glorify him because we know that is right.